This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. You know, for me, one of the most beautiful sights is a couple who've been married for 50 or 60 years, and they are as much in love with each other at that age as they were in the day they fell in love. It's one of the most awesome sights. I have known couples who have been married for many, many years, and yet they can't stand to be away from each other. It is absolutely beautiful. It's inspiring. It is thrilling experience for everyone around them. And I thought in a culture of, that has confused lust with love, in a culture that has confused perversion with purity, that a culture that has confused eroticism with intimacy, a culture that has confused momentary pleasure for a lifelong commitment... Such a relationship is not only rare, it is inspiring. In the same way, our continuous love for the Lord Jesus Christ not only draws the attention of others to Him, but it is indeed dear and near to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Michael, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, the only way I know that is what Jesus said. He is the one who told us what brings joy to his heart. He is the one who tells us what brings disappointment to his heart. And it's the only way I know is what he said from his own word. There are people who are running around today and speaking with authority of what the church should do, should not do. There are people running around and speaking with authority about what the believers should do and should not do. And all they're doing is they're adding to the confusion. When we, all we need to know is in the book. It is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the seven letters in the book of Revelation, Jesus tells us exactly what he likes and what he dislikes. He tells us exactly what honors him and what dishonors him. He tells us exactly what is pleasing to him and what is displeasing to him. He tells us exactly what he expects of us. He did not leave us as a prey to the circumstances or to the fancy and the fantasies of some preacher or some theologian or some pastor. No. He tells us everything we need to know. And that is why, beloved friends, this series of messages on the seven churches in the book of Revelation is probably one of the most important series that I've ever preached. Very few people would disagree with me that this is a confusing time, that we live in a time of confusion. Times of confusions are very important times to go back to know what Jesus said. In times when one's opinion is king, in times when commitment is fleeting, in times when dedication and keeping one's word is no longer binding, in times of rampant false teaching in the church of Jesus Christ, it is vitally important to cling to the words of Jesus. It is vitally important to take hold of that which is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In each one of these seven letters, I notice one thing. All seven, seven times, each time, Jesus said, I know, I know. 
Every time. He says, I know. What does that mean? It means that there is nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that he knows who is faithful and who is not. It means that he knows who is serving him and who is self-serving. It means that he knows everything. It means that he knows not only what goes on in his church, but he knows what goes on in the heart of every believer. Now, to be sure, these messages were delivered to the pastors of the churches. And they were delivered to the pastors of the churches so that they would not speak their own words, but speak Jesus' words. In the sense, it's an awesome responsibility. So, the first message of the risen Christ is sent to the church in Ephesus. If you read books and commentaries, you're going to find there's a lot made of the fact that Ephesus was geographically the closest to Potamos, where John was caught up to heaven and seen the revelation. That's where he was at the time. But in reality, it's a lot more than that. Ephesus was the most important city in the region at that time. Ephesus was not the capital, but was the most important city in that whole region. And that is why the message comes to them first, because of three reasons. Number one, it was a free city. All the major cities had Roman soldiers guarding it. They were under the thumb of the Roman emperor. But Ephesus was a free city. It was self-governing. It was also a city that was the center of pagan worship. It was the center of the worship of Artemis. And that is very important. It was also the city that contained so many people from diverse ethnic backgrounds. And that is why Paul the Apostle considered Ephesus to be a very significant and very strategic city. Why? Because he knew once the gospel takes hold in Ephesus, all these people from diverse ethnic backgrounds, they're going to go back to their countries, to the places of birth, and they're going to take the gospel with them. And that is why the Apostle Paul, who was frigidy, who could not stay, still sit still in one city for too long, he stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city. He stayed there for three years. And he knew the soil is hard for the preaching of the gospel, but he also knew that once those Ephesians get it, they're going to get it. And that's exactly what happened. When they got it, they got it. And that is why this is the city, the church, that gets the first letter. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A precious heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that he who has ears, Father, we have outward ears and we're going to hear this message. But will you please, for the sake of the shed blood on Calvary, penetrate into our inner ears and into our hearts and into our vision, into our minds and into our will by the power of your Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can do that. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the description of the risen Lord Jesus Christ here. It is an absolutely astounding description, and it's also comforting and encouraging description. It says that he holds the stars, and these are the churches. And the number seven, as you know, in the Bible, is a sign of completion. All of the churches, all over the world, he has his church, all his believers, in his right hand. These believers, these churches, these men and women, boys and girls from every nation, every tribe who love the Lord Jesus Christ, they are held in his right hand. In other words, he is telling us that Jesus is sovereign over his children, that Jesus is in control in the lives of all those who have submitted their control to his control. It means that Jesus holds the security of the believer, the security of those who love him in his own hand. It means that Jesus would never let his own go or perish or be lost or be snatched out of his hand. What comfort thought. What joy to know that you are and I am in the very palm of his right hand. But he also said that he walks. He walks in the middle of the seven golden steps. That's again a Hebrew way of saying that, that he's actively moving in the midst of his people. That he's actively moving in the lives of all his children. The Bible said, Jesus said that when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm in their midst. I'm working, I'm listening, I'm hearing, I'm answering, I am involved in the lives of my children. What does the risen Lord think of these believers in Ephesus? Well, there's three things. Three things. First of all, he tells them about three praiseworthy virtues that they exhibit. Three praiseworthy virtues. Secondly, he tells them about what they're doing that is breaking his heart. And thirdly, he gives them a three-step program for the recovery. Three praiseworthy merits. You see, the believers in Ephesus, they were alert. They were biblically sound. These believers in that church were discerning a commodity that is so rare these days. These people were discerning. They were active. They were involved. They had a good program for every age group in the church. (laughs) They were busy believers They tested false teachers and they rejected their false teaching. In other words, they were good Presbyterians. (laughs) They did everything in decent and order. They were good Baptists. They went by the book. They were good Evangelical Anglicans. They fought the liberals. 
But not only that, they didn't moan and complain and criticize like other churches, like other believers. They did what they did with a sense of endurance. They did what they did with a sense of perseverance. They faced tribulation, and they faced persecution, and they faced discrimination, and they faced all kinds of hardships, but they faced them with courage and with valor, not moaning and complaining and saying, oh, look at me. They did not give in to the permissive culture that was surrounding them in the worship of Artemis. They stood up, and they stood out. And every one of us would have to say, wow, isn't that impressive? It's not wonderful. And it is. I'm not making fun of them. Don't misunderstand me. It is absolutely thrilling to see this church. It was not only biblically sound. It was not only persevering. But also it was a church that refused to tolerate evil. They made sure they cut sin out of there and wouldn't allow it to fester like cancer. They had good spiritual discipline. They would not put up with the sin of the Nicolaitans. And I'm going to come back and explain that in the message to the Pergamum church because I need to spend a little time explaining that particular sin that was rampant at that time, but it's much more in details later on. Members of First Church of the Ephesians served well, worked hard. They had done everything right. Which brings me to the second thing. The thing that breaks the heart of Jesus. In their focus of doing the right thing, in believing the right thing, they have let the most important thing go by the wayside. They allowed the love for Jesus to slip by and go by the wayside. Let me explain this in more practical terms, perhaps, so that you can understand it. It would be like the husband who sends his wife flowers, who never forgets anniversary date or birthday date, who gives his wife expensive gifts, but he doesn't spend time with his wife. It would be like a wife who keeps an immaculate house, cooks delicious food. The house is perfect. She does everything right. She takes care of her husband's needs but never enjoys fellowship with her husband. That is how the Lord Jesus Christ is feeling about the church in Ephesus, and that is why he's telling them, he's saying, you are doing all the right things, but letting the most important thing go by the wayside. Beloved, I want to tell you that's how the Lord Jesus feels about his children whom he loves. That's how he feels when they believe the right things. It's not that he ignores that. It's not that this is not important to him. It is important. That's why he points it out to them. He says, I praise you for that. I am glad you are believing the right. I'm glad you're believing the truth. I'm glad you're standing for the truth. I am glad you're upholding the truth. 
But let me tell you something. Upholding the truth doesn't have to replace your love for me. Listen, I've traveled the world and I've seen it. And I've seen churches that they are so right on the truth that they let the love for Jesus Christ go by the wayside. I've seen believers who would fight to death for the truth, but the love for Jesus Christ has gone by the wayside. It's like the couple who went for counseling. And the wife said, my husband never tells me that he loves me. And the husband said, that's not true. I told her that I loved her 25 years ago, and I haven't changed my mind. You see, I know that you know that Jesus loves you. Even little kids know Jesus loves them. You open the book, and a thousand times through the pages of his book, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know that he loves you. I don't have to dwell on that. But did you know that Jesus wants you to love him back with the same intensity that he loves you, with which he loves you? Did you know that? Did you know that it breaks his heart when you cease to love him with the same intensity that he loves you? I want you to hear me right. This is important. Believing the right thing about him is very important. Doing the right thing by him is very important. But Jesus craves for your love for him more than anything else. He's not saying, let the other things go. No, 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 no. That's what the liberal church has compromised. They said, we let love rule and no truth. That's where they went wrong. And their, their idea of love is sentimentality anyway, not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. And when you do not love Jesus, when you ignore him all week long, and then you come to church on Sunday and says, I love you, Lord. Well, you know, I'll sing the words anyway. It breaks his heart. We say, well, God understands. Yes, he understands. But here's what he said. He said, that's the one thing, the one thing that wounds my loving heart is that you have ceased to love me like once, like you did once. And I'm not talking about just saying the words. He is talking about loving him day in and day out. He's talking about loving him with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your spirit, with your decision-making, with the model, role model you set before your family, the role model you set in your business, loving him with every ounce of your being. I know the problem for all of us. Listen to me. If you don't think I'm tempted as much as you are, if not more than you are, then you get it wrong. Listen to me. The temptation for all of us is that we live busy lives and we confuse serving Jesus with loving Jesus. Those of us especially involved in ministry, that's a huge temptation. That we begin to replace our love for Him and spending time with Him and adoring Him and worshiping Him with serving Him. And yet the Bible from cover to cover tells us that it is your love for Jesus, your love for Jesus, your love for Jesus is the most important thing that you can give Him back. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel for a bride. And He, in the example of a husband, and Israel as a bride, and He loved them, He gave them everything, He lavished His love upon them. And what happened? Like a woman who runs after other men, they ran after other gods. And God's heart was broken. Go home and read the book of Hosea. 
It will help you understand the heart of God. In the New Testament, which the Apostle Paul calls the church, in Galatians chapter 6, he calls the church the new Israel of God. It is the bride of Jesus Christ. You and I, the believers in the Lord Jesus, we are His bride. He betrothed us to the Lord Jesus. And just as Israel of old, the church, the believers, have forsaken their love for Christ, running after other things. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds will be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did you know that you can serve Jesus but not loving Him? Did you know that? Did you know that you can believe all the right doctrine, all the sound biblical doctrine, but don't love Jesus? You've ceased to adore Him. You've ceased to worship Him. You've ceased to spend time with Him. You've ceased to magnify His name in your life. In fact, when that happens, even your service for Christ is nothing but duty and drudgery instead of being joy unspeakable. But here's the good news for all of us. Here's the good news. For those of us who have done all the right things, believe all the right things, but have forsaken our love for Jesus Christ, your divine lover is waiting for you. Your divine lover is trying to woo you to himself. Your divine lover is welcoming you. Your divine lover is longing for you to turn back to him. And that is why, thirdly, Jesus gives the church of Ephesus three-step program for recapturing the first love. He says, recall, reverse, and recapture. Recall the time when you were so overwhelmed by the love of Christ for you. Recall the time when you were so overwhelmed with the forgiveness of God through Christ of your sins. Recall the time when you realize how unworthy you are and yet God forgave you all your sins. Recall the times when you received from His hand the gift of eternal life. Recall all of that. And recall how you were not only overwhelmed, but you wanted to spend your days, you you want to spend your nights in adoring Him and worshiping Him and in thanking Him. Recall that time. And then ask yourself the question, what sin, what sin entered into my life that has robbed me of my ability to love Jesus and lose my first love? What or whom has distracted me from loving Jesus? What or whom diverted my attention from loving Jesus? What or whom stalled the hearts of my devotion for Him? Beloved, I want to tell you something. You don't have to go around running around from counselors and helpers and preachers and teachers. No, 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 no. I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God and from my personal experience, the place of failure is the place of recovery. Go back to that place. And that is why Jesus says, repent. Reverse course. Turn around. Go back. 
Don't just feel some remorse, an emotional high because you heard the words of Jesus. No, 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 no. Remorse is useless. It can't help you. But do something about it. Do something about it. Recapture the time when you used to love being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Recapture the time when you used to love worshiping Him and adoring Him. Recapture the time when your love for Christ occupied your thoughts, occupied your mind, occupied your desires, occupied your decision-making process. Probably this is one of the hardest things, to me at least, in the whole Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, if you persist, if you persist in not loving me, I'm going to do nothing short of coming and removing your lampstand. And probably nothing more terrifying for me in my walk with the Lord, that I would serve him in my own steam, that I'll serve him with my own strength, that I'll serve him with my own power, and I'll cease to love him. Probably the one thought that I would never want to contemplate for the Lord Jesus Christ to remove his light from my life, and neither do you. I promise you, you don't want to contemplate that either. And so I get to verse 7 where the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the reward of loving him. The reward of loving him. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, don't touch that tree, but they grabbed for it. (laughs) Jesus said, no, when you love me, I'm going to pick up the choice of the fruit of the tree and hand it to you on a platter. You don't have to grab for it. Many years ago, I heard the story that resonated in my heart and my spirit this last week as I was thinking about this incredible message that the Lord resurrected Jesus is giving to his church, pleading with them. And it was back in the 19th century, there was a renowned lecturer by the name of Wendell Phillips. And Wendell Phillips was deeply devoted and adoring of his invalid wife. And one night he was giving a lecture some miles away from his hometown of Boston. And his friends came at the end of the lecture and they said to him, he said, Mr. Phillips, he said, the last train has already gone and why don't you spend the night and go home in the morning? They said to him, you have to get some special transportation right now and and that's going to take a long time. And you know it's cold and sleeting outside. They said to him, they said, you're going to face many miles of, of treacherous road and, and, and difficulties. And why don't you just spend the night? And Wendell Phillips simply looked at them and said, thank you very much. But at the other end of those miles, I shall find my beloved Anne. My beloved friend, I want to tell you something. Your love for Jesus Christ is not only going to make the journey joyful, it's not only going to make the journey peaceful, it's going to make you long for the day when you see your beloved Lord Jesus Christ.